I love sport because, because of its purity, of its simplicity. But it gives you a sense of identity, whether you as an individual or as a nation. And that's why we love sport. You're listening to Falling in Sport with your host, Mzamo Muloy. We're still falling in love, one sport at a time. One of my fondest sporting memories was the day the Bulls and Stormers played the 2010 Super Rugby Final at Orlando Stadium in Soweto. By that point, I'd seen the Springboks win two World Cups on TV. But the atmosphere of friendship and camaraderie amongst total strangers that filled the streets of Orlando East that day is something I haven't experienced since. In this episode, we connect with unique stories from the world of rugby. We talk to Springbok and Blitzbok star Cornel Hendricks about losing rugby and finding it again. Anne Lee Murray gives us a different perspective about the Springbok story. And World Rugby accredited master trainer Neville Heldron shares about the sport that has marked his life. Okay, let's fall in sport. Cornel, the first time I met you in person, you just performed a dance routine in Leather Nochal at the Bright Rock Players' Choice Awards in late 2019. <laughs> Are you still dancing or have you given up that side hustle? <laughs> no, I, I think I gave up that hustle. I don't think dancing is for me. I would rather uh, well performing maybe a singing, okay. singing side of me, but okay. not, not dancing. <laughs> but it was fun though. 82 games played for the Blitzbox with 61 tries in the World Rugby 7 Series, 12 Springbok caps, a Commonwealth Games gold medal, and a host of Super Rugby highlights. That's just a snapshot of Cornell Hendricks' rugby achievements before a shock diagnosis in late 2015 slammed the brakes on his pro career. You are back playing winning rugby after a four-year interruption to your pro career because of a reported heart condition. We're not going to get lost in the technicalities of what it was. However, when the diagnosis was made, you were on the verge of joining the Stormers. Looking back, do you remember the emotions that you experienced when you got that news? Yeah, no, obviously, um, it was it was the saddest news um, I've received in my life um, for not, for, for not able to, to play rugby anymore. And I remember that day as yesterday. Um, they, they told me I couldn't play rugby anymore. Um, and I remember that I was just down and out. Um, I mean, standing up in the morning mm. with um, being emotional, going to bed to be emotional, yeah. just, cry, just sit and crying and think about what I've lost. And sure. yeah, um, here I am today again, um, yeah, just honoring what the Lord gave me in this talent and just to, to showcase that again. And I'm truly blessed to be able to give a second chance by our Heavenly Father. Because you also had, following the Stormers, there, was another, there were other opportunities to join a French team and then also a first stint with the Bulls, which fell through as well. Am I correct? Yeah, um, I was, I was uh, on my way to join the Stormers and uh, obviously that broke the news to me. And uh, I think... The, the following year, um, I got a call from Toulon to obviously to come join them. And mm. I flew all the way to, to France and I spent uh, nearly a month that size doing testing and stuff like that. And yeah, they sent me back and 
and I went to the Bulls afterwards and I did medical as well. Yeah. And yeah, they sent me back as well. And then I joined club rugby. I mm. played club rugby for that year in uh, in Wellington. Played for Roses United again. And after that, I went to Paul Rugby Club, um, where I extended my my playing days. Okay. So yeah, um, yeah. So what did you learn about yourself away from the pro game, away from elite rugby? What did you learn about yourself? I mean, I've learned a lot. Um, obviously, while playing, you're so caught up in in your own little world, your own bubble. And I mean, there's a lot of rugby players that will tell you that um, that lost everything um, uh, if you if you're not playing the game anymore. I've learned how to how to be selfless, um, uh, how to be um, yeah more grateful for things coming my way. Sure. I mean, while while playing, and you 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 on the top of your career, and you're playing for the Springboks, and you play great rugby, receiving a lot of stuff in life, and and I can say this with a humble heart and with all due respect, you get you get greedy sure. as a human being, um, and I I can be honest about it because I've experienced that first, and um, you think the world owe you a lot of stuff, and when you when you lose it, then you actually see. Um, that you're not that um, um, all that in life, yeah. you know. Um, sometimes things um, is been given to you, and and things um, are taken from you. So yeah, I've learned to be um, um, grateful for, for a lot of things coming my way, and to celebrate little things in life. Um, even though if I get one pair of techies for the year, I'm grateful. I'm always um, thankful for that. Yeah. And yeah, just to give back uh, again, uh, just to be. Just, just where you say, listen, I have enough now. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be content about it, and yeah. I'm just gonna give back and changing people's lives. And yeah, um, just, uh, just to do that. Um, if uh, yeah, I grow a lot in that, and yeah, just to give back. I always had a, a giving heart, yeah. but I, I gave in a, in a, in a, in a, in a bigger way, if you know what I mean. So yeah. Well, rugby still teaches me lessons until this day. And one of the biggest lessons I've learned through rugby is that it's so easy to criticize players, especially as a supporter. And that is the biggest lesson I've learned until now, is to not just criticize, but rather look at the circumstances. Rugby's really taught me that when you get knocked out, and I mean, in games we've seen guys get tackled out of nowhere. He does tackles that he doesn't expect. And this shows, it's taught me that no matter how hard life tackles you, you you always get up. You always get up, and it just strengthens you, um, and it just makes you more aware of the next time you're in that same situation. I think a definite life lesson um, and professional lesson actually that rugby reiterates for me is that the best teams and the most successful teams are the ones that work as a single unit. Because rugby needs the cooperation of, you know, 15 people, you know, to be able to achieve any of your objectives. I think, um, you know, the greatest lesson I've learned from rugby is, you know, the ability to understand your role and the ability to stay in your lane almost um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a team effort. Because if you don't have that role clarity, you're not going to be able to get any of the stuff done. Chinese entrepreneur Matilda Ho says, mindful patience 
is not the ability to wait, but knowing how to act while waiting. You had yes. a time of waiting that you had to experience um, for years. You started a foundation back home in Wellington in the midst of this disruption in your own life. Why? As I said, um, I always had a, um, uh, I always wanted to give back. Mm. Um, and you know, coming from the Bronx, you know, um, there's not a lot of um, heroes that you can look up to. Mm. Um, there's some here in one doctor, one child making it to uh, um, his rugby career, one becoming a doctor, there's a lot of teachers. And, you know, there's a lot of um, the gang leaders and stuff like that in our, in our, in our communities. And some of the guys, that's, that's the heroes. Sure. And, you know, um, me having a, this unbelievable mom um, caring for us mm. as a single mom and giving us the best that we needed at a time. And, you know, um, I see, see if, uh, install that giving hand um, to us and say, listen, we, we don't have to have millions or we don't have to have a lot of money. Yeah. All you need to do is you, you have to have self-respect, respect to others and always help people where you can. And you know, uh, you know what, coming from, from Wellington, the Peyton place mm. where, um, where we all, um, me and Juan, we're actually from that side of the world, growing up in that circumstances, um, I'm, uh, I always wanted to be a springbok mm. and also wanted to uh, give back and give my family, first of all, the, the best life they can have, yes. um, better than, uh, than um, the previous years or growing up. And also to change my community, um, even, even though it was in a small way, um, always coming back from the springbok camps, um, playing with the guys, playing with the little ones, touches in the touch rugby in the, in the, in the roads yeah. and giving um, food parcels away. And I just, um, and one friend of mine just said, listen, you can do it in the, uh, on a bigger scale. Hmm. You can start a foundation where companies can give money to you and you can do, you can change more lives. Hmm. And I told him, listen, the first thing I've read up, I've read up about foundation and stuff like that. The only way in the only, um, the only way I can, I, I, am gonna start a foundation. Not going, it's not going to enrich myself. Yes. First of all, I want to change lives. Mm. I want to be on the ground where, where it's dirty. I want to, I want to wash somebody's feet. I want to put the shoes on, on somebody's feet. Sure. So that's why I appointed people to work with the money, and I'm doing the grafting. And yeah, I've started that because I wanted to change more lives in my community. I know it's going tough yeah. at a moment with a lot of companies and I'm so grateful for still um, getting money from donors. And yeah, yeah so that, that's, uh, I just want, even though if you can reach 10, 10 children that can make um, their dream come true and yeah. turn the dream into reality, I will be smiling all the way. Sure. So yeah, that, that's how I... I started the foundation. And when you look at the successes from the time in which you've been running the foundation, any that jump out in particular for you? Yeah, we have a, we have a one, uh, uh, one uh, boy called Brayton Henkerman. He's playing it. Uh, we sent him to the Sox Academy. Um, he's busy studying that side, and it's almost four years that the foundation supported him. In. Sure. He made, he made us so proud and yes, I'm getting chills while speaking about <laughs> him. He's such a humble guy. Or oh, his, his um, single mom, he raised him and his brother. 
so yeah, he's doing well in Durban. So he, he's playing club rugby at the moment. So he didn't get selected for the Sharks under 21 or for the seniors. But I told him, Brayton, it doesn't matter if you if you play for the Sharks or not. Yeah. Um, go get a uh, degree and yes. and make us proud and just just do something um, with your life. And you know, you don't own anything for the foundation. The sure. only thing you owe us is coming back and tell your story and say your story to the to to the many more. Brayton's Colin Hendricks uh, mm. that that's out there that wants um, to be successful. No, that's precious. That's precious to more Brayton's. Now, yeah. not sure if you're much of a football guy, but when I think of you, I'm reminded of the great Brazilian footballer Ronaldinho. The guy always looked like he had a smile on his face when playing. And similarly, you yeah. do too with rugby, though behind a, a gum guard. <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming there's a big joy and gifting element to it. Talk about why it was so important for yourself to return to the game and what drove you to it. I mean, I've got a lot of uh, support. Of, I have got a big supportive structure um, that's driving me to, to do good. My wife, my kids, my mom, my sisters, my brothers. And, and you know, the whole community, the Wellington community, I mean, the Drakenstein, um, yeah, I think I've got all the support. I mean, um, in Pretoria as well. And I think my drive is to 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 do good. Mm. I mean, I've lost a lot. And I just, um, just to come back and enjoy my rugby again. And yeah. just to be that little bit of hope in my dark communities. Mm. Um, and yeah, um, I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, how can I say, I'm living the dream now. I'm, I'm happy. Because um, on the age of 33 years old, I'm winning uh, two curry cups right? in a row back. Come on. Back. Yeah, see, yo, I'm so blessed, you know. <laughs> um, and I always tell Coach Jake that, um, you see, um, uh, I wouldn't believe that I would stand there as a 33 year old in winning a curry cup back to back, you know. And yeah, um, just for me to, to be back on the field, giving a second chance and not um, regretting. Anything yeah. um, when I'm hanging up my boots one day and just to live um, to the fullest and play sure. to the best of my ability. And you know what? This, and, and when I look back, uh, when, I, when I'm, when I'm going to hang up my boots in a, in a two, three years time, yeah. um, just, to, just to be that dad that gave his all and that my children can see, listen, my dad gave it all on the field and um, I, wanna, I just want to be a hero to my, to my kids. and to the kids uh, in our communities. Um, so you, yeah, you're grappling with the, with the responsibility. You feel like your gift is a responsibility that you have to shepherd. hundred uh, percent. Uh, and I always pray before a game, uh, even though, um, like back in the days, well, when I represented the Springboks, oh. I always pray that, Lord, please bless my team, myself, the jersey that I represent today, to be the light in our dark communities. When mm. they see me on the field, they can say, listen, if Cornell can make it, I can make it as well. Mm. And I always used to say when I go back back home and, say, and I told him, listen, it doesn't matter where you come from. It's where you're going. Yeah. And use your circumstances to drive you and not to demotivate you in life. Because um, sure. I'm coming from the same place you guys are coming from. So I think um, sometimes... It's stressful going on the field as well yeah. because I want to. I want to take the responsibility. On I want to take it on me to say, listen, guys, I'm here. 
you can be here as well if you put your mind and soul to it. Yeah. And if you make God part of all that plans of yours, you will definitely be successful. So sure. yeah. Yeah. So this is effectively the second half of your career, right? So so we had a four year we, yeah. we had a four year halftime break. So this is effectively the second half of your career. From your yeah. Blitzbox days, you've always been a, a stepper playing as a winger. But now you've also adjusted to playing inside center with amazing success for the Bulls. With a yeah. new position comes new perspectives. What lessons have you gotten from this change of position? And do you feel like it's a new lease on life? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I'm I'm actually outside center. Okay. I played for Bolan Curry Cup back in the outside center. And I'm, I'm, I actually played uh, for the Blitzbox uh, inside center. And now and now and again some tournaments wing as well mm. and uh yeah but i've made it actually uh, i became a springbok uh by playing wing at the free state and yes. became a book that side and i've never i always told myself i will never play inside center because <laughs> yeah because it's so i wouldn't say um it's, it's physical yeah it's painful <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's, it's it's physical, but also it, it, it looks one-dimensional. But um, with Coach Jake um, taking over with the Bulls, I mean, he, he installed a new game plan that actually um, was effective for mm-hmm. me playing 12. And I mean, all credit to him and, and, and Coach Chris uh, so that actually gave me opportunity there because... Um, when they announced the game plan to us, I immediately uh, I actually felt com- comfortable in this 12 position. Mm. And yeah, and I, I, I immediately acknowledged the guys around me. I mean, Stepan Hans, Kurtley Ahrens, yeah. Stravino Jacob, and uh, David Krill at the back, at a time, Gio Eplon. You got elusive players, and all you needed to do, you just needed to take um, control. Yeah. And helping Mornestein as the fly-off um, who control the whole game. Just help him and get the balls in that guy's hands as quick as possible. And, you know, um, the, uh, I, the game is evolving every single year. Yes. Where you actually see a 12 as a threat, mm. you you will see the, the 14 and the 13 as a threat now. So the eyes is not on me. The eyes is on Stedman. And the and the back three, so it made my job easier. But I've enjoyed a new role, and it was tough because sometimes you needed to adapt to yeah adapt and man up uh, if there's contact. Sure. But I've uh, yeah I've I've enjoyed my time there, and actually now back at the wing, you now getting older, <laughs> uh, chasing all the eyeballs and all the kicking. Yeah, yeah it's getting. It's getting to me, eh? No, but but I I remember seeing an article saying that Jake White actually said you're going to get back into the Springboks playing through the middle. So hopefully we we trust that that comes to fruition. Uh, yeah. Now in terms of just just to hog back on that again though, so changing position and yeah. working for the team. Yeah. Have you found that that's also changed how you do normal everyday life how you how you relate to people in your community how you relate to your family how you see things uh, new business opportunities and things like that yeah 100 percent. i mean um yeah changing positions in um first of all if you're a winger you're a finisher if you get the ball in the hands you you just run for the white line and yeah. you 
go score tries. And uh, sometimes you don't see people, players uh, alongside of you running with the ball. But as an inside centre, you need to scan and you need to create. And I mean, um, as a 12, you need to be selfless as well. Um, you need to you need to um, create so that other people can look around um, that playing alongside of you look good. Yeah. I mean, if Stedman is scoring three tries and the winger score five tries, um, I think uh, I've I, I've done my job well because I understand what, what they expect from me. And mm. I think um, I, I've done the, the 12 jersey. Um, obviously, I've, I've done it proud because um, I needed to to learn how to be selfless as, as a 12 because normally... Um, coming from a winger, as, as I, I have mentioned now, um, you you don't actually, if you get a ball, you just run for the line. Um, but now as a 12, you, as you change now, you can actually um, create around you. So I needed to say, listen, I must change for the team so that the team can do well. It's not about me, it's about the team okay. winning. And I think I can take the same thing about, um, the same lesson to, to, to my communities. For in order for for community to change, I must change. I must be humble. I must mm. I must get a bigger picture. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think that played a lot of um, uh, a big role in my in my thinking and doing things now. I think what I love most about rugby is, for me, it's the intangibles of rugby. It's how closely related it is to actual life. Um, especially the defensive component. I think my favorite part is defense and how the the whole team has to be selfless, have to be disciplined, have to be hardworking. Um, I think I don't think there's a sport where defending is, is it requires so much of oneself um, and protecting your house, your try line is just so important. Uh, I think it's the best. What I love about rugby is the way that it brings people together. There's nothing more fun than getting a bunch of friends together at your house and crying and watching the rugby together. And of course, our country's history of rugby is also very special and like no other countries in the world. What I love about rugby, I think, is uh, the, the combination of it being such a game of grit and determination, but also a game of strategy, but at the same time, also a game that requires a lot of mental strength. I think the combination of those things for me and to watch it all play out um, is probably the thing that I enjoy the most about the sport. From a personal perspective, it gave myself, you know, a kid with shy, shyness issues and um, self-esteem issues, not only a life, but a voice too. Um, looking at the game in general, for me, it's basically a, um, you know, it's a metaphor for life. That 80 minutes is a metaphor for life in that um, you need to be brave just to step into the arena. Do you feel like you've got an extra four years left in you? Uh, I mean, like, I, I almost feel like this, the, the, the block, the, the, the time away from, from, from the top level kind of gave you an extra, an extra few years. So are you going to give us more than two, hopefully? <laughs> hopefully more than two, yeah. but I don't think four. If I look at you, Aplon, he's 39 years old now. And yeah. yes, that guy's looking good. And yeah, but uh, yeah, I will definitely give you more than two, but... Yeah, we will see. Um, okay. I always say the passion and 
and the hunger dries up, you must hang up your boots, uh, then it becomes a job. And uh, for all these times, I just enjoyed it. And um, I always see this, um, the, the one thing I love um, if I wake up in the morning. So, yeah, if it becomes a job, then you must uh, hang up your boots. And if you start moaning about this and this, and yeah, then you must walk away from the game and say, listen, um, I think I had enough. And yeah, obviously uh, going forward, it's just to, to better myself as a human being, yeah. first of all. And then just to, just to bring something, um, another flavor to the team and obviously to be better as a rugby player. And yeah, hopefully one day if I walk away from the game, I can ha- I, I'm not going to have any regrets. Cornell Hendricks, the man with heart. Like the people who enjoy the sport, Stories about rugby come in many shapes, sizes, and perspectives. In her book, The First Lady of Springbok Rugby, Anne Lee Murray shares stories from a unique viewpoint after 20 years as the national team's public relations manager. My book is, is, is not so much my story, really, but my Springbok rugby journey. Mm. You know, and it isn't about me, but about the many different personalities, the occasions, the experiences, and you know, it made the years on the road with the box such a remarkable memory. And, you know, and I hope that the book can educate and inspire supporters equally when it comes to the Springboks and the dynamics around, you know, what I think the greatest rugby team in the world. And I hope, you know, that it can serve an, as an aspiration and an inspiration for, you know, for any person, regardless of your gender, to work in sport. Sure, that's, that's beautiful. Why do you, why did you feel the need to put your experience down to memory and what do you want to tell us about the Springbok experience? I really wanted people to understand that it takes more than um, what it takes to get players onto the field for the 80 minutes. Mm. You know, that there's such a that's such, there's such a um, you know, a big operation to get them from the play, from the coaches to the to the, the, the medical staff, to the communications people, to the commercial and marketing people. And, you know, um, you, you know, so I hope it can serve as an aspiration as an, and an inspiration for, you know, any person that wants to get into sport. And, you know, I'm proof that there are several wonderful, talented, you know, professionals um, that worked with me and I'm proof that, that it can be done, you know. So so I, I think it was more, I want I want people to fall in love with the Springboks as I'm in love with them, you know. I want them to fall in love with what goes on behind the scenes. This story about rugby starts on my honeymoon. Me and the missus are driving to the Western Cape town of Clan William to salvage the second half of our comedically bad honeymoon. A few hours from our destination, we stop off at a small town to buy some refreshments. We decide to eat our snacks before heading back on the road in our rented car. We drove a rental because we'd crashed my father-in-law's trusty Jetta on a dirt road in St. Helena Bay during the first half of the trip. Parked next to us is a random elderly uncle type who starts a conversation. He laughs as we tell him our story before asking for my wife's maiden name. Helbron, she replies. And with fanboy-like curiosity, he responds. As in Helbron, the rugby player. That was the first time I encountered the legend of my father-in-law outside the confines of his family. Neville Helbron was a much-vaunted amateur fly-half in the 1970s in the then Eastern Province. 
a product of St. Mark's Rugby Football Club in the Port Elizabeth Township of Shorterville, Helbron rose through the ranks from juniors to seniors before eventually playing provincially. For the benefit of this conversation, I'm going to refer to him as Neville instead of Dad. So, Neville, according to my sources, apparently you were very competitive. And when you didn't get your way, you were sometimes an Arki. Not the fruit Narki, but the sole loser variant. Is that true? Very much so. And uh, <laughs> with time, as time uh, started, as I started growing older, I was brought down to earth to say, play for the fun initially and stop this competitive natures of your, nature of yours, which in later years only, I managed to develop that part of, of my game. You played rugby when South Africa was at its most segregated during apartheid. What kept you motivated to play despite not getting the opportunity to play at the highest level? The fact that we were able to also still have our underground meetings in those days where the special branch people would be on your back within no time for whatever real reasons, because in those days, one could not play in the then townships, even though you, you grew up together. And when the apartheid and uh, apartheid laws came in, where people were segregated and taken to different parts of the, the city, hmm. we still managed to keep that uh, and use the rugby as also a basis for us to, at the time, show the then regime that we were also part of a community and we are South Africans. Hmm. And looking back now at where rugby is in South Africa, do you look at the achievements of the likes of Siakolisi and Cheslin Colby with fondness? Very much so. Uh, we did not have the opportunity then to participate as a united front, as a, as a complete South African team. Hmm. And... Uh, Yes, I can say that uh, those people who were there before us were the pioneers of non-racial rugby. And we took it further. And eventually, with Unity came, it now gave opportunities to the youngsters of the likes of the Colbys and the Andy, Andy uh, Jacobses and the Ricky Januarys that they could fulfill their personal dreams and become the international stars that they got to get that ladder which they climbed eventually. And based based on that, I, I am very much able to say being part of the previous regime or the previous situation, I'm happy that they are able to fulfill those dreams. When you look back, any standout moments when you did play um, against your contemporaries, when you played provincially, are there any standout memories from that time? As a club, as well as provincial level, there's many standout uh, memories which I can recall. Time between 71 and 74 where our club won just every trophy that could be won within the Eastern Province. It was in those days, the league, it was the knockout, it was the champ of champs, 
and it was a section cup for four years in a row. We just managed to annihilate all opposition. We had a very rounded team, and I was fortunate to be captain of that team for two years. However, the very first one was when I was presented with my very first provincial cap, which is an SA Cup cap, and that was having to play the mighty Western province in those days under the leadership of a guy called Sally Fredericks, who was one of the best locks that I have seen in my life as a player, and uh, a scrum of called Kashim Jabbar. I was fortunate to play against those guys at the mm. time when I was a 19-year-old when I made my EP debut. A lot, of, a lot of South Africans talk about the Prince of Wings, and they refer to the Prince of Wings as the Carl Duplessis. However, I was fortunate to play with probably the King of Wings, Desmond Boyson. Mm. Unbelievable, natural, talented, Without lots of training, this guy was wonderful. Hmm. In addition to that, I had the fortune to watch and then play against Peter Mkata hmm. at Flyer. That was brilliant. It was poetry in motion. Every player by far has got to be the greatest flanker ever to do it. Um, Richie McCaw, gotta love his his endurance. You've got to love the ability that he had to get away with absolute murder, as far as uh, referees were concerned. Um, but I think also just his leadership style and his leadership capability and his 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 level of endurance. I don't think we've ever seen anything like it, and I don't know if we ever will ever again. You say Jason Colby. He's shown the rugby world that like the rugby fraternity are worldwide that size does not matter. If the man has the skill, um, size does really not, it really doesn't matter. And um, you can rise above that. Um, also, secondly, um, he's shown his peers um, uh, from a personal perspective, from where he's grown up, um, that your circumstances does not determine where you can end up one day and your circumstances is not an anchor and you can b- rise above those. My favorite rugby player is Gerbrand Grobler who's currently playing for the Sharks and I'm a little bit biased because he is my brother but I love my brother and I love watching him play rugby and supporting him and I guess that means I have to be a Shark now. Hilbron has the unique distinction of having played and refereed provincially at the same time during the SA Cup era. On top of that, with Unity, I was the very first referee of colour that refereed the Curry Cup that was promoted to the Curry Cup panel. There were two of us, but the other one never refereed any Curry Cup games. Yeah. I was fortunate to, to referee between 92 after Unity right up to 96. I was on okay. the Curry Cup panel. And uh, one of the most testing games from your time refereeing Curry Cup was like, do you ever find yourself on the end of a, of a controversial decision? <laughs> Never. Curry Cup, was, <laughs> Curry Cup was a piece of cake being compared with any SA Cup game that I refereed. It was a piece of cake because it was not as hard fought as what I was used to at SA Cup. 
a student of the game, Neville later went on to join South African rugby before serving as referees consultant for the Springboks under then head coach Peter de Villiers. It was during a historic period for the box, which produced success and lifelong memories. The match that really stands out is 2009 when we went to New Zealand and we played them at Hamilton and we won the Tri-Nations mm. on New Zealand soil. That was a very absolute standout and precious moment when we beat them 33-29 in that last game to take the Tri-Nations. And, and you were the referees consultant. So can you just ex- explain what was your job in that, in, in, in that scenario? My role was to initially analyze each and every referee that we were going to be confronted with in all our games to mm. ensure that I know exactly what makes this individual tick, what are the things that he or, uh, would focus on mostly, what are the things that he does not necessarily pick up those, that was one side of it, so that I can prepare our team for whatever they will be faced with on the day with the referee on the field. In conjunction with that, I also had to do the analysis of all the game, particularly where we as a team would overstep boundaries and get penalties unnecessarily against us and see how we could rectify it during the course yeah. of the week. And not only us, but also the opposition team, so that I could then give feedback to the team what it is that we need to work on. And during the week, we would then focus on, on rectifying our errors. A target okay. that we set ourselves, in fact, that I said to the group, was at the time when I got onto the Springbok uh, management the average penalty count was 16 hmm. against us. My target was to reduce it to 10. We ended up by eight, at 8. Okay. And that was done okay. in the very first two years of being with a box. So uh, can you be credited with taming Bucky's Buerta then? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Not at all. The Bucky's <laughs> and I had some very, very fond memories, I can assure you. He is actually a very good connoisseur when it comes to whiskey. And I yeah. was fortunate <laughs> to go to one of the uh, whiskey uh, distrib- uh, delivery distributors in Auckland, in, 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 uh, not in Auckland, in Scotland. We went yeah. to Edinburgh where we did some tasting, obviously not me, but with Bucky's. But <laughs> what... Uh, what a time we had with him there. There was eight of us that did this particular tour. But yeah. what a gentleman of the field. On the field, he was robust and hard but, uh-huh. and uncompromising. He played it, and many people thought he was overstepping the boundaries. Yes, here and there. But a very disciplined person of the field. <laughs> Having said that, you probably have a few funny stories in your back pocket then from that time with the Springboks. It stands out like it happened yesterday when mm. uh, we had to have a meeting with the then referee manager of World Rugby IRB in those days, Perry O'Brien. And there must have been about 10 of us who had a meeting with him and some of the other 
World Rugby representatives. And Peter, Peter opened the meeting by saying to Perry O'Brien, as a youngster, he grew up and he would always pray and sing to God. And he always said to himself, I wish I meet God one day. And he yeah. said to Perry O'Brien, and I want to tell you, today my dream has been fulfilled because I've now <laughs> met the God of rugby and referee. <laughs> it took the sails out of the wind of Perry O'Brien. He actually wanted to leave the meeting. <laughs> he battered him up properly. <laughs> no, he did not do it on purpose. That was Peter. Yeah. That was Peter. Peter's Peter's. That was his personality. And he said mm. it. And he said it in no uncertain terms. But it was for me, it was the most funniest moment looking at those expressions of all the other guys sitting on the opposite side of the table. Um, I remember seeing a photo of you doing some bungee jumping in New Zealand. Or was it bungee jumping or abseiling no, off the side sky, of the building? Sky jump. Sky jump. Sky jump. Okay. Yeah. So, so who was the protagonist to get that going? No, none other than my friend from the Eastern Cape, Charles Vessels, arranged this for the whole team. Unfortunately, everybody backed out. It was only <laughs> myself. It was only myself, Percy Montgomery, Paula Nchinga, and... Uh, Flippy, our luggage and baggage master, the four of us okay. were man enough to go up and jump the <laughs> and do the sky jump of 180 meters on a rainy, wet, windy morning in Auckland. Goodness me. Wow. Okay. So out of a, out of a whole touring squad, it was just, just a handful of men then. <laughs> Yeah, no, they, 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 the unfortunate thing is as much as what these guys are macho men and big, they all got scared and they pulled out because they were told when they were when they read what they had to do and how they had to do it, then going up there, all the way up there, and there's no way coming down again but to do, yeah. do the jump. But they all remain behind. Favorite rugby moment has to be 2015 Rugby World Cup, uh, All Blacks versus France. Um, so Aaron Smith to Retalic, and then Retalic to the bus, and then the bus just pummels through the French like nothing you've ever seen before in your life. What a try, what a moment. So yeah, definitely, definitely one of my top. Coaching the Westful Boys High School first team and winning against Alfies, I think for me that was a game where it was so tough. Uh, Alfies has such a proud history, but the fact that my team um, won that day, um, it was, I think, <laughs> that was a, a Goliath versus David type of game. Um, and we came back from behind to win it at the death. Uh, but yes, the result was great, but more than anything, also it was really nice to achieve something that was, I think, changed the um, the, the, the mood of our school um, for months to come, possibly, yes. Probably the 2007 Super Rugby Final, sitting on the stands at Kings Park, watching the Bulls and Sharks go at each other. And basically the Sharks, having won the match, and then in the last, well, in overtime, Sharks not kicking out the ball and then the Bulls somehow finding a way through. 
and ultimately winning the first Super Rugby Championship for a South African team. That memory will last forever. In 2009, the British and Irish Lions saw their hopes of a series win against the Springboks ended by the boot of Mornay Stain, who came off the bench. 12 years later, under the cloud of a global pandemic, the Bulls' pivot won the box the series again. Having seen him do it live before, what went through your mind when you saw that again? It, it took me back 12 years, and, it's, and I said to myself, based on what we experienced with him on the day, the confidence that he had had not ever died down when he had to do that, when he came on and he was given the opportunity to win the game for us in this last one. So what went through one's mind, especially mine, was that he still had the confidence, he still had the composure, and he slotted that kick. A few years ago, um, we got to meet you in Esteras, in the Easter Pretoria, as you were overseeing an under-15 or under-16 rugby tournament featuring several unions. But to my pleasant surprise, this was an all-girls competition. Now, this was the first time I'd ever seen young women at that age play full contact. But the standout memory for me from that day was a particular young lady who played for the Sharks. Not only was she her team's starting tight head prop, but she was also the designated goal kicker. What made this more intriguing, notwithstanding her size, was her speed downhill and she could carry for days. I remember watching from pitch side thinking, wow, she may be wasted where she is because she'd make an awesome number eight or flanker. When you look at player profiling, like what attributes make for a good fullback or what intangibles make a player more likely to adapt to different positions, what tools do coaches and selectors use to make sure players get used in the right positions? Player profiling is a template that's being used nowadays regularly to determine position-specific. However, what has happened, and specifically now in the later years, with strength and conditioning becoming quite a valuable part and an integral part of rugby, mm. you will find that position-specific, yes, particularly in certain uh, uh, positions like in your front row, there's no question about it that you could, you need to have certain attributes and physicality around the individual. It's not anybody that can play in the front row. However, in the days when backs used to be backline players where wings stood there all day long, it has changed. So the functional roles for all players within one team, they have now become so diverse that you could, for any reason, select a wing to go play scrum at times. And, and the reason why I say that, just to remind us that not a few, uh, long ago, we had Ch- uh, Cheslin Colby having yes. to come from the wing to fulfill the position of scrum up when we were a man uh, short, when we were given a yellow card as, a, as one of our scrummers was off at the time. Sometimes I just wish that the game was more simple and to understand and that you know there'd be less mistakes especially from the officials and that's not really nice to see these games these days being determined by officials instead of players so 
that is one thought that always crosses my mind is how can the game be simplified? I think rugby in South Africa does not understand the potential power it um, it wields. Um, obviously, due to its past as a as almost a tool to enforce, you know, the you know the the, the, the greatest notions of apartheid. Um, it also, you know, holds you know the the, the the potential power to to unite this country. And I just don't think enough people in you know in the influential spaces within the game actually understand that yes i was uh, i was coaching my team and i immediately caught a whiff of uh of deep heat whenever i smell deep heat I, I i could close my eyes and i can imagine the emotion that i felt when i was a player myself and deep heat equals uh it equals it's almost time to go it's it's show time and and all those wonderful things. And yes, I speak about deep beat, but I think rugby is just that wonderful thing that there's so many things. It can be a conversation with somebody, it can be a song, it can be a smell that reminds me of, reminds you of the friendships of, of that battle mentality of, of so much. And it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing about rugby. In your opinion, what are the key ingredients that make a competent rugby player, uh, be it character, application, um, or maybe even the unseen elements uh, like tenacity and servanthood? Having been around as a player, as, a, as an official now, as a trainer, and also just having a, a wide lens of, of time, having seen all of that, what are the key components that make a good rugby player? The cornerstone for me would be the values that I instilled in you from a world rugby point of view, where you look at integrity, you look at discipline, you look at dedication, and you also have to look at respect. Mm. So respect for yourself and respect for your opposition and respect for those who are actually there to direct and guide you and for me that would be a player that ultimately will become successful rugby is about passion solidarity discipline and integrity for some it's a hobby for others it's their bread and butter and perhaps for a select few the cornerstone of their well-being when William Webb Ellis decided to pick up that football and run with it, little did he know that this backwards forward game would be the stuff memories are made of and nations are built on. I hope this episode has given you insights into different kinds of rugby stories. Thank you for listening to Falling in Sport. We'd like to hear your thoughts on what stood out for you and what's helped you fall in love with rugby again. We're on Twitter at Falling in Sport. We follow back. <laughs> Listen to previous episodes of Falling in Sport and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Iona FM, or wherever you listen. Hope to speak to you soon.